You know what? The other thing I realized with this is remember my whole thing last season where I'd be like, it always comes back to cannibalism. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but this time we're both like, and the cannibalism. So understandable. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes you just have to know your body. This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where a warm wind blows in from outer space, bearing the voice of the universe when it was just a baby. I'm your host, Nino. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking about Earthlings, Sayaka Murata's novel of alienation, survival, and trauma in our very own dystopia. Earthlings was published in Japan in 2018 and translated into English in 2020 by Ginny Topley Takamori. Okay, two things before we start. First off, listeners, if you've been catching up on Queers at the End of the World, you might have heard some pretty dystopian sounding ads in front of some of our old episodes, and we're so sorry about that. We're new to this ad technology, which is part of our agreement with LitHub, um, awesome folks who are helping to distribute our podcast these days, and we're still trying to figure out how to control which kinds of ads people here, we hope that we have fixed the problem that resulted in oil and gas companies telling our listeners that they were bringing folks our episodes, which is true, but only in the strictest sense that they're indeed causing the end of the world. But if you hear a problematic ad, please let us know. You can send us an email at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM us on social media, and we will continue to try and adjust until we get things right. And all you're hearing is things that you might actually want to know about. In the meantime, if you do want to just like avoid that whole situation entirely um, until we get it figured out, we've got all of our episodes up ad-free as public posts on our Patreon page. So you don't have to pay for them to hear them. Um, We're going to keep it that way for at least the next month or so until we get it all figured out. The upshot is, sorry about the big brother showing up on our pre-roll. Tell us if you hear his authoritarian ass again and... You can catch ad-free content at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world for at least the next month if you'd prefer that. We love you, and we want you to experience a soothing and pleasant time on our podcast feed. Okay, apropos of which, Matt. <laughs> okay, so the other thing before we get into talking about the book is a big old content warning. Yep. So even for the plot summary and definitely for the episode, this is an intense and violent book. There is sexual assault that's described explicitly as well as implied. There's child abuse of several kinds. If you're not feeling up for it, we completely get that. That said, this is a great book, and it's also a book that's probably best read without knowing what's going to happen. We are going to be giving you spoilers galore. So if you've always meant to read Earthlings, you might want to hop off the podcast feed and do that. Yeah, and to be honest, I guess I want to say I was a bit freaked out by Nat's description of this book before I read it. You know, I was like, I'm going to light some candles and like run a warm bath and just like take (laughs) care of myself, which was not a bad idea. Like it is exactly as violent and intense as they warned me. But I also was just so moved by this book and so drawn in by it. And as much as I want folks to know like what they're getting into when they open it, I also think that it's a fantastic book and really worth reading if you're up for it. Okay, so the plot of Earthlings. We meet 11-year-old Natsuki Sasamoto riding up a twisting mountain road to visit her family at her parents' house in Akishina, a rural mountain town in Japan. In the car with her are her mother, father, and sister Kisei. Mom and dad pour their overbearing, underboundaried love into Kisei, while Natsuki, by the time we meet her, has learned to fend for herself. Natsuki is excited to get to Akishina, though, because she knows her cousin Yu is there. Yu is the only person Natsuki has told about her true identity. 
She is a magician tasked by the magical police with saving the world. The emissary of the magical police is Piet, an alien from planet Poppin' Pobapia, who's disguised as her plush hedgehog. Yu, in turn, has told Natsuki of his own not-so-secret identity as an alien. His mother, who struggles with depression and suicidality, has been telling Yu he's an alien his whole life. Natsuki and Yu get married, vowing to survive whatever it takes. Back home in her city of Chiba, we see Natsuki being emotionally as well as physically abused by her family. Natsuki understands her hometown to be a factory for producing babies, and she wishes to be brainwashed into becoming a successful factory component. But she's a magician with alien powers, and it's hard for her. And her mother and sister make sure she knows that she's useless and will never get anything right. Natsuki even refers to herself as a quote-unquote dead loss. Meanwhile, at her summer cram school, Natsuki is being molested by Mr. Igasaki, her teacher who's a predator in the guise of a boy band singer. Natsuki tries to tell her mother about the weird things Igasaki does, but her mother is violently, ballistically unable to accept it, and she refuses to believe or help. Igasaki lures Natsuki into his house, where he rapes her. The next day, her grandfather dies, and the whole family goes back to Akishina for the funeral. There, she asks Yu to have sex with her in an attempt to, at least once, enjoy her body before it's totally destroyed by Igasaki. He agrees, and she has a deeply comforting experience with him, but they are found and torn apart by their enraged and frightened relatives. Natsuki's family leaves in shame and never returns to Akishina again. We then skip forward to Natsuki in her 30s. By now, she lives in a condo with her husband, Tomoya, who she met on a website for asexual people looking for beards. The two live companionably as roommates, and it gets their families mostly off their backs, though Natsuki's community is still on her case to have a kid. Natsuki now knows she's not just a magician, but an alien from the planet Poppin' Pobapia herself. Still, she wants to be brainwashed by the factory so that she could become a component like her friends. Tomoya, on the other hand, is terrified of brainwashing. He's learned to look at the world through an alien eye that lets him see how unjustified and stupid most human mores and taboos are. Tomoya gets fired and becomes suicidal at his inability to live as he wishes, but perks up at the idea of going to visit Akishina with Natsuki, who's been telling him about it for years. When they get back to Akishina, we learn through flashback that when Natsuki was a child, she was forced to kill the wicked witch who was inhabiting Mr. Igasaki. This happened right after she was pulled away from you and brought back home by her family. They had kind of locked her in her room, but then they tell her that she has to keep going back to cram school, and Natsuki realizes she's going to have to confront Mr. Igasaki again, he, you know, basically makes it clear that he's going to continue to assault her, and she understandably concludes from this that he's being inhabited by the Wicked Witch, who needs to be killed so that the world can be saved. And in order to do that, she takes a garden scythe, activates her magical power of leaving her body, and stabs the sleeping witch until that Wicked Witch is dead. Later, she learns that Igasaki was murdered, and she wonders who did it. Back in her 30s, Natsuki and Tomoya arrive at the Akishina house and meet you there. Yu has left his alien days behind and grown up into a tolerable factory component. Tomoya loves Akishina and the couple stay until one day Tomoya decides to ask his own brother to have sex with him in an effort to become less human. The brother tells their parents who quickly come and collect Tomoya and Natsuki. Both are subjected to interrogation and Tomoya admits that he and his wife don't have sex. They're allowed to return to their condo, but only with the promise to make lots of babies. 
In private, Natsuki's sister Kisei tells her that she actually witnessed Mr. Igasaki raping her. Kisei suspects Natsuki of having murdered him and implies that the only reason she hasn't told anyone is that doing so would ruin her own marriage. If Natsuki screws up Kisei's perfect life by being an asexual alien, Kisei just might stop covering for her. Natsuki runs home and tells Tomoya that she probably murdered someone once. He forgives her since aliens aren't subject to taboos, and the two of them run off to Akishina to try and get you to come live with them away from society as the aliens they are. Yu is easily convinced, telling Tomoya and Natsuki that all his life he's heard silent voices telling him what to do. The three of them go to the Akishina house, attempting to rebuild the rules of their lives according to alien rationality. They steal food from the neighbors and they keep the lights off at night so no one knows they're there. But when the snow hits in the winter, things get difficult. Meanwhile, Kisei has been outed for cheating on her husband and suspecting it was Natsuki who told on her, she spills the violent beans to Igasaki's elderly parents, who rush off to attack our guileless alien parasites in their sleep. Natsuki murders the shit out of them, and you suggest since food is running low that they butcher and freeze the couple. They do, in graphic detail, and enjoy some miso soup with man and stir-fried man with daikon leaves. We flash forward a few weeks, and Natsuki wakes up sucking on a finger bone and holding a pute made out of human hair. Rescuers have found the snowbound trio, but when they enter the room where the three of them are gathered, they just start projectile vomiting and screaming. The book ends with the two men and Natsuki informing the heaving rescue party that they are each pregnant with an alien child. (laughs) So, yeah. There it is. <laughs> That's Earthlings. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Normally, a book this violent is not something that I would want to read. Like, so much violence, I think, in media feels really voyeuristic. And, like, we're being kind of invited to, like, revel in it. And Sayaka Murata's style is, like, really deadpan. And so I think the ways that the violence is described is really just about, like, this is what happens in the world sometimes. Not about kind of making you watch. It's totally not voyeuristic. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, this is a total departure for what I typically like to read. You know, I wanted to talk about how I came across this book. Yeah, yeah. It was, I think, a path that a lot of people took who are fans of Sayaka Murata. I read and loved Convenience Store Woman, mm-hmm. which is this absolutely wonderful short novel that was her first work published in translation, mm-hmm. also by the same translator who translated this book, Ginny Tapley Takamori. And that book is handling many of the same themes you see in Earthlings. Mm-hmm. We're getting outsider identity. We're getting the pressure of the baby factory on the main character. We get a, a woman main character who an external observer might put labels on like neurodivergent or asexual, but a character that's incredibly observational and a kind of deadpan narration that's about being in this character's life and experience without judgment. Yeah, that's such an impressive part of this book. I think yes. one of the reviews that just sort of exclaimed about Sayaka Murata's ability to write you know, from this character's perspective convincingly, but without putting a thumb on the moral scale, I think is the way that the reviewer put it. You don't ever feel like the violence is being condoned, but you also don't feel like it's being moralized about or like, you know, a finger is shaking about it. A- absolutely. And that is something I felt 
powerfully also from the other novel, less about violence and more about being an outsider, having this different perspective than the society around you. And obviously to me, that book felt incredibly queer. Mm. And so when this one came out in translation, it was like, give me more, I am ready for this. But then you get the, the novel and on the front, it has a single blurb above the title and the blurb is one word, startling. <laughs> you know, that blurb actually kind of pissed me off the second yeah. time reading it. How did you react to that? I'm so curious. I don't know. It feels a little tongue in cheek to me that they put that right in the front of the book because I think it reflects a certain attitude that actually is really satirized and taken to task in the book itself, in Earthlings itself. This sort of sense of being startled by violence that happens every day. The the kind of abuse that Natsuki experiences and the way that she reacts to it, the dissociation, the, you know, that I don't want to reduce it to like just like a portrait of of post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever. But I also think that there is nothing particularly startling about the ways in which she copes and the kinds of, of things that she thinks and experiences in response to a childhood that is that violent. 100%, 100%. I feel that same reaction when I see that quote myself. Mm. Like, is it startling that this is the dystopia that we're in? Is it startling that someone would have an extreme reaction to being put in this situation? Are we going to kind of fetishize this book for manifesting that and speaking about it without guile and plainly and in this deadpan tone that just depicts what is? Yeah. I feel like, you know, you were talking about like this dystopia. And I think one of the interesting things is that this book takes place in a dystopia even though it's modern day Japan and realist Japan and the sort of like messing with realism that happens in the book is a matter of style, not of setting. So there's the main character Natsuki's perception of the world that she lives in as dystopian, right? Like the factory as this overwhelming social force. And I think it does this really cool thing of kind of playing with the sort of tropes of dystopia as like this massive scale social pressure. But then I think it does another thing, which is it really demonstrates the way that trauma in this child's life is kind of a personal apocalypse and like just yeah. the the absolute dystopian nightmare of being a child in an abusive family. I mean, we talk about like, you know, whatever, like the Ministry of Love in like 1984 or something like that as right. like sort of paradigmatic dystopia where there's this all-powerful society that just crushes all dissent and completely controls every aspect of the lives of the people who live in it and, you know, uses these arbitrary rules. Like, that is standard for what it's like to be a child in an abusive family. And as I was reading Earthlings, I was reminded of the chapter in Bell Hook's book, All About Love, which is about children. She starts it with the quote from Judith Vorst, and she talks about how like the parent-child bond is what teaches us how to love. And she says, we cannot be whole human beings. Indeed, we may find it hard to be human without the sustenance of this first attachment. And I feel like that's really, you know, one of the things that Sayaka Murata is exploring is like, what is it like to experience life as a not human as so many people cope with feeling like they are not human because of 
the experiences that they've had, especially as kids. Oh, absolutely. You know, and one of the things I really do enjoy about how she writes that is it's like there are these apocalyptic moments in the life of the protagonist, like her rape and abuse at the hands of this university teacher who's teaching at her cram school, neglect and physical abuse in her family. But then it's not written in this like cause and effect pipeline Mm -hmm. where it's Mm -hmm. like, this happened, so then all of this resulted from it. So like, true. She was abused, and so she thought she was an alien. Like, there's this interesting vagueness that I think is very representative of how it feels to be a child and then also to grow up amidst this kind of trauma where we have a sense of Natsuki being maybe someone who also is an alien for other reasons. Yeah. She talks about longing to be brainwashed by the factory, but that's actually not really within her grasp. Yeah. I mean, you know, talk about things that feel kind of queer about this book, but that feeling of like recognizing that there's something wrong with the world around you, like you're different from everybody else. And like seeing exactly how it works because you're on the outside, it's it's easier for you to see. But even though you have this really, really clear kind of bird's eye outsider view of what the society is trying to do and how you might fit into it, you cannot do it. Yep. And there's yep. all these scenes of like Natsuki kind of mimicking friends and family and not doing it quite right, like laughing because someone else laughed and then people being like disgusted by that reaction that just feel like so resonant for me you know, about queer childhood, just like you're, you're trying to be like, okay, is is this what I should do? Is this what I should do to like, feel the way that I'm supposed to feel? Right. Just doesn't work. (laughs) And like, that's a narrative that I know is part of the neurodivergent community as well. Mm. And just trying to imitate people and hide and not knowing why people are behaving the way they behave. And just trying to kind of smooth things along, but then constantly being clocked. Like, mm-hmm. I, I I, also really feel that as just as a queer person. And yeah, the other thing I was going to say about this, just in terms of apocalypse and dystopia, and some of the themes we talk about on this show is that this book harkens back for me to some of the conversations we've had about survivalism. Mm-hmm. And preppers and being off the grid and these sort of post-apocalyptic imaginings of Mm -hmm. another way of being. You know, we've had this back and forth about like the queer post-apocalyptic commune versus like the prepper compound. Yeah. (laughs) And like, (laughs) this is really disruptive of that binary. Yeah, it super is. Because you actually really want it to be, I think, a cause and effect incident of trauma. Like this apocalyptic crisis happens, this rape, and then this character suffers, but then ultimately she overcomes is like not what this is in any way. I think if there's anything that is startling, (laughs) (laughs) it's the way that it kind of makes you encounter like not only you know, I, I was talking a lot about like the the sort of like ha- encountering the reality of like children's lives that many children are unfortunately subject to violence like this. But I think one of the really one of the startling things about it is just like there are so many moments in this book where you think that Natsuki is going to be okay. Yeah, you know, like Natsuki is a is a child with so much capacity, 
and she's really doing her little best. It, not not to be normal, but to like be like wildly, strangely resilient. Take action, protect herself. You know, I experienced the moment when she and you have sex at the grandparents' house as a moment where she is like doing something that I think, oh, thank God, the kid is able to say my body is mine and I want to share it with this person instead of that person. Yeah. There's kind of like an amazing coping capacity in this kid, but things get worse and worse and worse, even as there is so much evidence that at any moment in in the plot, they might go the other way. And especially as an American reader who has certain expectations for like the way literature is going to go. Yeah, for sure. Having to come into contact with my own needs and expectations for what this protagonist does and how her life turns out. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm thinking of the moment when you realize that she murdered Mr. Igasaki. Uh (laughs) Even in that moment, I'm like, it was like this fugue state. She was like delirious because she's in this nervous system response that she can't control. Like it's Mm -hmm. driven by trauma. I fucking hate that guy. And like, I kind of wanted him to die. Yeah. Maybe everything's going to be okay. Like she can recover from this. She's going to like grow up and she's going to find this like, you know, queer group that makes art and works together and like, <laughs> podcast, and it becomes all very like functional <laughs> or whatever that right. means. Yeah, noticing my desire for that to happen, and then having that refuted by the author, by the narrative, by the character, mm-hmm. I think is actually the like core of what made this an interesting book for me. And allowed me to engage with its, like, startling (laughs) violence. Um, Because I'm like, why am I bringing that desire here? Is that how most readers are experiencing this? I'm curious, like, do you feel that in those moments? Or do you experience it a different way? I mean, I'm pretty sure that I texted you at 2 in the morning when I got to that part of the book the first time. And, like, texted you in all caps, she murdered that motherfucker. (laughs) I was so excited. (laughs) I was like (laughs) pumping my arm in the air. And I feel like it is this kind of like training that you're speaking to, like maybe especially as Americans, this training to see violence as cathartic and to see violence as like the end of a story, like the like the solution, you know, and I also as I'm reading, you know, mixed in with my delirious joy at the fact that this guy is not going to be able to to rape her again is like I was glad she was totally dissociative. I was glad she didn't know she did it. You know, like that felt like real magical powers to me when I was reading it, like the real magical powers that <laughs> you know, in in children sometimes have to employ when they are subject to violence like that in order to get through it. And I was hoping that it would that it would protect her from that memory when she was older and that that's kind of what I was seeing. But I also felt really sad for that kid because it's an absolutely horrifying thing to have to have done. And yeah. I mean, like you're saying, cause and effect doesn't feel as pat a, a binary in this book. It, it, it's kind of hard to talk about it without having recourse to that because that's kind of how I know how to talk about a you know narrative that you read in a straight line, but she is both kind of protected from that memory by the dis- various dissociative states that she lives in. And also it bears every consequence forward into her life, including the fact that she did a thing like this and, and, and it certainly didn't save her, you know? 
whatever that yeah. would be. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's a thing in me that's thinking like, oh, this moment was going to save her. And that was her cathartic release. Now she's going to like climb and build and we're going to get to see this like quirky. And I, I will say, I mean, I think part of the reason the other novel, Convenience Store Woman, was successful in the English speaking market is because that book does kind of result in this like quirky existence. Mm -hmm. You have this character that is really weird, cannot get with society, doesn't understand why society should be the way it is, tries to kind of assimilate, but then is like, actually, no, and I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live. Mm-hmm. And it's like this rallying cry for like just doing what you want to do. But like in that book, it's like, I just want to work in a convenience store and like not crank out babies in the factory. Right. And, but then in this, it's like this like horrifying sense that like Natsuki actually kind of has this force in her that enables murder. Mm-hmm. Murder and 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 rape and into like, you know, Tomoya tells her he's going to go like his his initial plan before he says he's going to go request that his brother have sex with him in a consensual way. First, he tells her he's going to go have sex with his grandfather who's in a hospital in a vegetative state. And she's like, yeah, sure, why not? Right, right. This book is refusing to let me, at least me, right? Like, I'm not going to say the reader because let's banish that term. But like, (laughs) yeah, I feel refused in identifying with the character in the times when I want to identify with her the most. Yeah, yeah. And then and there's like other subtle stuff too, like the fact that there are multiple moments both with Tomaya and with you where I get this feeling and this isn't necessarily like explicitly put in the text, but like for example, Tomaya, we know that he does not like to be touched. Part of the reason that they're together, right, is that neither of them wants to have sex and they both need their families off their back. So they've gotten married to kind of, you know, make their families think that they have a, you know, quote unquote normal relationship. But like Tomaya can't stand to see women's skin exposed and he does not want to be touched. Yeah. And there are multiple times throughout the book where she touches him kind of for her mm-hmm. own comfort mm-hmm. and it feels like she's coercive, you know, she's not really ever thinking about who Tomaya is or what he wants. It's just sort of like, this is what's happening. This is what's happening yes, next. exactly. This isn't this like heartfelt sort of traditional protagonist who's like mm-hmm. underlying all the trauma is this soft, gentle, sweet person who really wants to connect and is just like being prevented. What underlies the trauma is in fact this void that we can gaze into and see like the scarily distant stars of the universe and our own impending death or something <laughs> like it's like major ennui <laughs> and, and like contemplation of annihilation, I think. Yeah, I feel like honestly, it's a problem that kind of lingers at the heart of Western dystopian narratives too. And something that I was thinking about a lot with the sort of like nihilism and refusal yeah. of this book. This this comparison was coming up in my mind to like Bartleby the Scrivener, which is a Herman yeah. Melville story that kind of came back into the cultural center stage around Occupy Wall Street when that was happening in the late aughts. And there's this really great Lee Edelman who, as longtime listeners of this show will know, this is a name that I bring up a lot, but there's a great essay by Lee Edelman about Bartleby the Scrivener and Occupy Wall Street um, because people were like, 
reading Bartleby at like Occupy protests and the central line in, in Bartleby the Scrivener is I would prefer not to, right? It's about this like clerk who's working on an office in Wall Street and he refuses to do his work and he refuses to leave. He says, I would prefer not to. And, you know, there's all this stuff in the story where like, the boss is like, prefer, it's a queer word, <laughs> you know, because like, it's not saying yes, and it's not saying no. And it sort of infects and undermines all of the like decisive steps that the boss wants to take to get Bartleby to leave or to like make Bartleby a better person or like make him a functional human being. So there's some connections, I think, between those characters in terms of they're just like, they're not saying yes and they're not saying no. Like Natsuki also would kind of like to be part of the factory, but she can't. And that what Edelman kind of comes to in that essay, I mean, my understanding of it anyway, is that like there is this desire for like a communal us Mm -hmm. togetherness, likeness in both left and right American movements that in some ways amounts to the same thing of like, we can all be together and work toward the same goals. And then we will have the bright, good society that we want. And this book is not into that. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like that's so resonant with some of the things I was thinking about and the connections I was making reading this, because I think there's definitely that sense of like, Myself in reading a book like this, I'm like, but when is she going to find her people? Like, where's her queer art commune or whatever it is, right? I mean, I think Earthlings feels in some ways kind of accessible to me as an American reader, partly because of the tricks it plays on my expectations. I mean, I don't know if I'm in any way a reader that Sayaka Murata is thinking of, but 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 I do feel messed with thoroughly. It's funny because one of the reviews that I thought was like extremely silly as a review was like annoyed at the book for being too much like 60s counterculture. <laughs> like she's just like, oh, these kids just want to run off to the woods and like be naked. And like, we try that. And I'm like, yeah, and it's making fun it's of making you. It's making fun of you for doing that. That. Exactly. <laughs> We're thinking that you can just go to the woods and be naked and it's going to fix the trauma of the overculture. Like. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what's going on there. I, I I love that about this book. And I also feel so delighted. And, and folks listening who listen to our Matrix episode will recognize this type of comment coming from me. <laughs> But I do just feel like she gave the finger to all the people that were like, we love convenience store woman. Like this, I feel so seen by this, you know, give me more of that seeing. And she was like, I think you are funny. Like, I think you are funny for thinking that you can just live your quirky life. And that's like a solution somehow to this problem. Exactly. I mean, not that she's over comedic about this. Like it's, it's, it's really serious, but you did say it's flamboyant and there is a scene of Natsuki sucking on a severed finger at the end. <laughs> it's so good. I love it so much. She like wakes up and she's like, oh, the finger rolled out of my mouth. <laughs> and then she just like goes and puts it back in. <laughs> I appreciate like that level of going there. I appreciate an author who's like, I am not writing for the people that made one or the other of my particular works famous. I'm writing for something beyond that, which is, I don't know, this nihilistic vision that we were saying is present kind of in both books and in this void I said I gaze into when I try to get to the bottom of who Mm -hmm. Natsuki is. There's even like, there's a really, you know, there's a moment that gives me a lot of 
kind of emotional satiety where Natsuki and Tomoya say to each other, like, I'm so glad that we got married because nobody else could have understood me as well. And like, this was a thing of convenience, but it turned out to be such a a beautiful thing in our lives that we're able to support each other in this way. And it's such a satisfying moment. And he, you know, she's like, hey, I think maybe that all my magical powers were coping. And I think maybe that I killed someone. And he's like, it's okay. It's okay. There's something so satisfying. and, And I think that there's a level on which that feeling is real. And then also, we don't stop there. Yeah. Like, yeah. then that permissive, that okay, that it's okay, then leads to, like, it's okay to steal all the food from your neighbors in the middle of winter and then to murder the people who, I don't know, that scene is complex too. Yeah. I don't think necessarily that this book is completely rejecting the communal. I mean, I think that there's a sense in which the three of them are finally starting to be okay on some level. Yeah. Because they are finally able to actually get away, you know, for a little while. Right. And they're doing this thing and it's kind of pedestrian. It sort of seems kind of immature. Like they're just like, let's talk about rationality, right? Like it's like- Right, or like 18-year-old boys trying to hash it out. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it feels like 18-year-old boys like reading Sartre or something and then being like, well, (laughs) this is how we should behave. Exactly. (laughs) Philosophy club. (laughs) Yes. But then that experience also brings her back to her body, which like she can taste again. She's tasting human flesh, but she can taste again. And she can, <laughs> Yeah. The, it, it doesn't feel like that response is being completely condemned to me for that reason, because there is so much kind of like, so many like individual little moments of beauty and sweetness and healing. Yeah. But it doesn't work if it's not, like it, like it can't support itself. Yeah. And if it can't support itself, then it has to survive whatever the cost right it has to survive whatever it takes and then what it takes is murder and theft and coercion and using people's hair to make dolls you know (laughs) yeah yeah no i i i totally see where you're taking that and one of the things that happens in this book is the characters redefine marriage and they redefine divorce Mm. so Marriage in the context of Natsuki and you is this bond that they establish to support each other and help each other survive. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing that makes Natsuki's childhood okay up until this incredibly traumatic crisis. But it's this idea of what marriage is to her is this incredibly sweet and, and natural seeming Mm-hmm. reinterpretation of this concept that's been like used as a tool of oppression and abuse. Yeah, but but then she's like we're going to make our own family. We're making our own family. Marriage has the meaning that we want it to have and these are the things that it does. And then I was thinking about that too because for me the moment when the three of them get together and Tomoya is like we all have to get divorced. Like, mm-hmm. I find that to be one of the most happy moments in the book as I'm reading it because it's like they've realized that what they need to do is allow themselves to not be tethered to each other's pain, suffering, trauma, PTSD, all of it. 
And mm-hmm. that is the moment when I was reading this book for the first time that I was like, oh, great. Like, this is such a great moment for this book to end. It began with this <laughs> marriage and now it's ending with this divorce that's freeing them. Like, <laughs> Oh my God, that's so true. But I mean, I think it, looking at it from that standpoint, I think part of what the ending is saying is that is not enough mm. because of how fucking oppressive this is. It is what can be done. And it is inadequate because this outside world is too fucked up for anything other than absolute extremity to change the fundamental situation of suffering that these characters are trapped in. Yeah, they're not able to get to a point where they can even stop fighting. They just continue to have to fight and hide and conform and cope. And then those coping mechanisms just have all these side effects. And I'm thinking particularly of you here. Because of who you in particular is, there is no way for any, you can't divorce you mm-hmm. because you as a person who in the sort of verbiage of like current psychosocial banter, we would call him like an empath, right? Like you was raised by this really, really overpowering mother who was constantly kind of threatening to die and he was kind of parentified in that relationship. And like his way of coping is to just kind of like intuit what people want from him and do that. Ugh, it's too real. It's so intense. Yeah. I know. I And it's just, I so appreciate that Sayaka Murata like really asks you to like see what that means. Like it makes you go back and reconsider what you saw as like this beautiful children taking care of each other. Like him being the only one who knows her and sees her and loves her. Once you realize that that's who he is, you know, Natsuki even says like, did you hear a voice from me? Like, did you only say yes to me and take care of me because you knew that I needed that? And he's basically like, no, 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 you're different. (laughs) And you're like, that's what he knows that that's what she wants him to say right now. Yeah. So that moment is so beautiful. And also its insufficiency isn't just about the pressures of the outside world. It's also about the fact that like people need different things. And what Tomoya needs in terms of like a grand totalizing theory that he can like then live out is actually like completely poisonous to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's going to exert that same level of control on him that he's learned to receive from other people. Mm-hmm. And then he becomes the, the best murderous alien of all. Yeah, and that's sp- explicitly played out in those ending sections. Like, yeah. I think Natsuki even comments on how good he is at all of this, better than her and Tomoya. Mm-hmm. It's like she's actually become aware of this quality of him. It's so weird, you know, because it's like, She eats human flesh and gets her taste back. And then like living with these two people, she feels this sort of stirring of intimacy that is actually appealing to her. And like she's actually able to kind of perceive other people and think about them and reason about like maybe a little bit more about who they are. And I just I don't even know what to say about it because it's like happening. the, The vision I have of what's going on in that house in this moment of like her blooming is it's like people chopping up dead bodies. That's the <laughs> vision that you see. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, thinking about it and trying to like draw the whole book together, I start to be like, you know, is the final statement here with all of this that trying to find your people and form one of these communes leads to like mutual annihilation through like 
consuming each other due to this like mm-hmm. thing where it's like, oh, I need to bloom. And so I actually consume the people that I'm with mm-hmm. in the process of doing that. And like some level of critique of how those communities end up kind of self-annihilating, which is really true about especially some of those classic communes that people actually formed in the Back to the Land movement in the 60s and 70s. Like, yeah, those people sure. fucking destroyed each other and were abusing each other out in Vermont. Like, <laughs> not all of them turned into that, but like, yeah, it's not easy to coexist. But like, it's not a straight line to that conclusion. Another part of me is thinking about like, this is kind of a stretch. So like, but this is what we do on this podcast. Um, So I went to see the comedian Mae Martin non-binary comedian martin tells this anecdote at the end of the hour and it's like this buddhist parable this person is like running away from this beast the metaphoric beast of everything negative in life i think is the implication Mm. and running and running to get away from this thing they jump down a well and then realize as they're like sliding down that there is a beast at the bottom of the well and (laughs) so then like they you know in the anecdote like you grab onto this like root and are like caught like between the beast like looking down into the well and the beast at the bottom of the well and then like as you're like just clinging to this root and your strength is quickly draining from you and you can only hold your body up for so long in this anecdote like this protagonist notices that there's like a dot of sap glistening at the end of one of the root tips (laughs) and so they just like reach out and take the sap and taste it and it's delicious (laughs) And so, I love that. Like, oh I'm like, is the point of Earthlings that the sap is like the moments of like renewal and human connection that happen along the way? Like <laughs> the, the sap of human flesh. <laughs> you knew where I was going with it. This is why I love you. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh man. I don't know. <laughs> I <feel> like <laughs> I just think it's like hilarious to read Earthlings and then just be like, you know, it's not the destination, it's the journey. It's the people you meet along the way. <laughs> or the people you eat along the way. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Thinking about that moment as catharsis, I I guess it just makes me question because I think one of the things that drew us to reading this book in the first place is sort of thinking about these like, you know, internalized monsters and the sort of sense of monstrosity that like, certainly, I mean, I definitely do not want to speak for all queer people on this, but I can say like for myself, this sense of like internalized monstrosity that I think is like 100% connected to internalizing the messages that society gave me around what I knew that I was, you know, as a child, which is, you know, this queer monster that um, if people knew how I felt about them, then they would, you know, reject me or be afraid of me or think that I was gross. And like, so there's this sort of like internal experience of that, like, and then on top of that, there's this sort of social 
um, you know, constantly being depicted as like pedophiles or like evil villains at best, at best you're an evil supervillain, you know, like, <laughs> like I think often that character in a lot of like kids movies is like using the sort of lilting sweet voice of like, of like a woman to like lure people into a feeling of safety that's then, yeah, so they can violate that. And I, and I, you know, feel like I sort of was set up for a long time, like as a kid to sort of see myself as dangerous in that way. Like it's a little scary for me to read this book because there's ways in which I feel like it does sort of reinforce the idea. Yeah, there's an aspect of it that's scary. And I, you know, earlier on, I was kind of making fun of myself for wanting there to be a redemption narrative or everything's okay. Mm. But then looking at it from a queer perspective and from a non-binary perspective, it's scary because it really does leave these liminal characters in a place of suspicion. Mm. And the elements of identification I feel with their stories are cross-pollinated with things I find horrifying. Mm -hmm. And at that kind of climactic moment of non-cathartic, shocking drama, the book is just like, see ya. And it just (laughs) fades into black, uh, you know, on this image of these people with starvation-swollen bellies saying they're pregnant. Or maybe they are pregnant because we've lost <laughs> we've lost the thread of reality and we're in this like mm-hmm. vomitorious moment of horror. And like it's scary because when you identify with the elements of of a narrative like this that feel queer, understanding the other elements of how the characters end up where they are in terms of their experiences of being outsiders and experiences of trauma, and then being left to see them as really monstrous entities. I don't know. I, I It's not like I want an easy way out. But then at the same time, like part of queer life is about healing. It's about resisting annihilation. Yeah. And then this book is about like kind of exulting in annihilation and mutual annihilation. Yeah. One of the things that I was really wanting to ask you, Nat, uh, as somebody who grew up kind of on the fringes among survivalists, you've said before about this book that you can kind of see how something like this would happen, that you, you know, have been connected to people who you could sort of like see the road. And I, I don't know, I wanted to ask you a little about that and like how, like what this book means to you kind of in the context of that experience. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that's been an interesting part of my life as someone that grew up homeschooled and in some of these like liminal spaces that are just interesting and weird, you know, like I didn't grow up way off in the woods. But one of the things I think that comes up when you operate from this other foundation is it becomes hard to differentiate between someone is doing something weird that I find acceptable And someone's doing something weird that is fucked up and unacceptable. Because you just don't have a frame of reference. Like a rubric for that. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. It's like if I were to recognize something in Natsuki that reminds me of that, it's we talked about how she's permissive of Tomoya proposing doing criminal acts that trespass on people's consent. And I mean, if you've been isolated and cut off in whatever Mm. way, trauma, as depicted in this book, or Being in a fringe community, emotional abuse. What's happened is that has invalidated the normative rubric that you would use to 
evaluate anyone else's actions. Yeah. And so what ends up happening in those situations isn't like, oh, this is wrong, but I'm doing it because I different than what society was doing, which is kind of how Tomoya operates, right? Like he knows it's right. fucked up, but he's like, I'm going to do the opposite of what society tells me to do. Right. Natsuki doesn't actually have an internal rubric because what is there instead is the imaginative landscape. Right. And that is a classic trauma response. Whatever type of ostracism and isolation that has led you to be aside from the voices and influences that lead you to have an internal mental representation of like what society would think or say about a thing, right? Mm -hmm. This is this idea of like someone who's kind of gone off the grid. Mm -hmm. And what I was thinking about with that is Natsuki, who is this character who is in my mind off the grid. Like Mm -hmm. she hasn't developed a coping response that is like a reaction or an engagement with the external society, the factory. She's -hmm. developed an internal space that she exists in. Mm -hmm. And in her internal space and with the existence of this fantasy life, her coping strategy is something more like do whatever comes to mind. (laughs) Yeah. And like the thing that I come to with that is it's, it's this like confluence of two things. One is having an internal fantasy scape. The other is experiencing trauma because If your coping mechanism and the way you operate in the world is do whatever comes to mind, do whatever you imagine, do whatever makes sense in this fantasy scape, that results in completely unpredictable and at times incredibly arresting moving actions and behavior Mm. and other times behavior and actions that are dangerous, violent, and themselves abusive. Because when you, as a person like that, create an internal fantasy scape, part of what it is built from are things that you need and want. Mm. And part of it is built from the behaviors and trespasses of your abuser and the things they taught you to want, the things they taught you were okay, the things they taught you are part of the reality that you are living in, which is this Mm. internal construct that you've put together. And so when actions and decisions result from kind of um, going into this internal space and being like, okay, what should I do next? The message that comes out of the mouth of this alien stuffed animal that's telling you how to do your magic is sometimes good and right and other times is completely fucked up and like telling you to trespass on someone's consent or, you know, murder or whatever. And as someone who has that as the basis of your decision-making construct and your morality, it's, imp- it's impossible to tell those things apart because they're both mm. coming from the same place. It's mm-hmm. like there's like buildings in there and the bricks are like me, my family, my abuser all put together into this like foundational structure you know, it reminds me like that Bell Hooks chapter I was talking about, like the thing she uses to describe child abuse is like intimate terrorism. Yeah. Is the phrase she uses to describe it. And I think that's right. It's like when you're terrorized, you know, you you don't 
recognize the level of threat and what your relationship to it is. Like it's not in a context. It's just like overwhelming, unpredictable terror. Yep. And so yep. no wonder you behave unpredictably. Like, well, it's no wonder you would create a story about it because you'd be like, mm. you know, if going in a room causes me to stop breathing or something happens and my ears shut off or like I can't taste anything all of a sudden, that's fucking magic. Mm-hmm. Like it seems completely supernatural that things like that would happen. Mm-hmm. Why do things seem like this? Why am I dizzy? Why does the world seem like it's closing in on me? It's a magical force. Mm-hmm. Like how else could you possibly interpret that, especially when you're young? Yeah. And, and I feel like it's really relevant to thinking about this in, in terms of it being kind of a, a queer book because, you know, I, I don't want to be too neat and too pat here. But for me, the sense of monstrosity that's lurking in this book and its connection to these sort of feelings of queer monstrosity, it, it makes me think about Anne Svetkovich in, in her fabulous book in the Archive of Feelings. She's writing kind of about queerness and abuse and the sort of connection between like this idea of of sexual trauma and this idea of becoming queer and queerness is sort of perceived as a response to trauma. And I mean, the thing that Anne Svetkovich said, which was just so fucking powerful to me, was like, if this came for me out of abuse, like if I am a lesbian because, because Anne Svetkovich is a lesbian, if I'm a lesbian because of the trauma I experienced as a child, like this is the best possible outcome for the trauma that I experienced as a child is that I have found like this way to be that makes so much sense to me and feels so good. Mm, yeah, that's such a wonderful way of talking about that. I just feel like, I mean, as someone that has experienced trauma, it's like, you wonder how much of your life is caused or set up by those incidents. Mm. And saying it that way, like that it's a positive outcome is like, it's simultaneously acknowledging you can't really know why things come out the way they do. Mm. And let's not worry about that. Instead, let's take seriously the fact that positive things have happened as a result of our personal histories, even if those histories were super fraught. And that who you are is like, is good and wonderful and okay. Even if the like, sum total of your experiences on earth have not all been good yeah. and okay. I mean, there's that image that we start the whole book with where there's this absolute darkness hidden under every leaf in the forest on the mountains that they're like going through when they're on their way up to Akishina. And, you know, I, I mean, queer monstrosity is this strange and wonderful and frightening thing. That's also totally natural. That's like the forest, you know, and the way that, and it's, and it's frightening in the way that the darkness of the night sky is frightening. And so, like, the danger is not bad. It's just, like, a I don't know. It's, like, just it's just a big deal. <laughs> it just matters, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, in a queer parental mode, it, it makes me imagine an alternate narrative of the novel where someone in some way was able to say that to one of these characters. And, you know... I can't I, I can't help being a maudlin, like positive, optimistic imaginer of utopian outcomes where <laughs> you go down the other path and you get to see one of them 
just have one encounter like that where someone would be like, the way you are is okay. And that would become this thing that they could remember and would influence the decisions they made at other critical junctions. I don't know. There's this question in our in our notes document for this episode that is, what do people do with pain? Which I feel like to some extent I've been like talking around because I'm like, I have no idea how to answer that. But it's like, you know, if we look at this novel and the sort of the tragic outcomes of the amount of just constant alienation and rejection and abandonment that all three of these characters experience over and over and over again from their youth all the way to their adulthoods to their eventual alien pregnancies. <laughs> like, I mean, what do people do with pain is like, like they make coping magic <laughs> is one of the things that they do with it. Yes. And coping magic is like, it's it's like a terrible and beautiful thing that like saves people's lives and can also disconnect them from things that they need. Well, I mean, the logical line to draw there is to be meta about it and say, the book feels like that for me. I feel like there's a thing where like magic for me can mean imagination because magic is a thing that is a product of people's imagination and interpretation. And so I, of course I think about the kind of imagination that would lead to writing a book like this. Mm. And how like, just, just like what you said, it like simultaneously is like full of these incredible, like magical possibilities as a, a piece of art that someone made. But then also like, it's, it's a scary book. It's, it's disconnecting. It's confrontational. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's not written to try to build community, right? Like mm. it's this. <laughs> Yeah, quite the opposite in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a declaration. And Mm -hmm. like, I I feel like um, the book resembles a type of coping magic if we imagine it in the context of not the the version of society that we're talking about when we talk about the internal one in the book, which is a representation of real society, but like Mm. a woman writer creating this shocking novel and being like, hey, like, fuck you, patriarchy. Like, my imaginary world does not comply with literally anything. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. And you're going to fucking love it. And you're going to feel so freed by it and seen by it, even though it makes you feel also pretty sick to your stomach. Exactly. (laughs) And you're just going to have to sit with that and (laughs) suck on the finger bone of my... on the finger bone of my coping match. <laughs> put that on a t-shirt, Nat. I'm like, don't put it in. <laughs> this has been Queers at the End of the World. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa. Get in touch for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode is La Fin des Ericotes by Tintamare. The show is produced and edited by me, Nino McQuown, with marketing and technical wizardry by Nat Mesnard. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Our website is queerworlds.com, and you can email us directly at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. Good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs>